0: Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. And just a quick reminder, if you would like to hear this episode and every episode without adverts and with loads of additional content and be part of a new High Performance community, then you can subscribe to High Performance Plus, a new premium service. All you have to do is click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for the price of just a couple of cups of coffee a month, you can get even more from the High Performance team. But this podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all within. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So, right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entrepreneurs, and in this case, authors on the planet so they could be your teacher. Remember, this podcast is not about high achievement or high success. It's about high happiness. It's about high self-worth and taking you closer to a life of fulfillment, empathy, and understanding. Today, the most successful author on the planet joins us on high performance.
1: It seemed to me to make sense to, to do something that I like to do. and I, I started writing and, uh, and I loved it. And I, and I said, well, I somehow I want to try to figure out how to do this, you know, make a living out of it. You know, the secret of life is finding something that you love to do, and then and then it's a miracle if somebody will pay you to do it. You know, you're going to make a pitch to President Clinton on why he should, you know, write books with you, or, you know, why should he? I don't know. I'm going to think about it and figure out what's the most persuasive argument. Dolly Parton, same thing. She's not full of herself, but she's very confident in, in her abilities. And I think, you know... President Clinton is similar that way. I think I'm similar that way. I don't know that there are any rules, honestly, other than understanding who you are and following that within reason and maxing your strength and minimizing your weaknesses. I actually really enjoyed this conversation.
0: You might be thinking that this is um, us talking about how to write a great book or how to be a great author. It's none of those things. It's about how to understand people. It's about how to create relationships. It's about how to hook people in. It's about how to sell something. It's about how to get to someone's heart, not just their head. But this is also a conversation with someone who's lived an amazing life. You know, James Patterson is about to bring 75 years of wisdom to this podcast. His first job was in a psychiatric hospital. He's recovered from prostate problems and lung cancer. He also holds the New York Times record for the most number one New York Times bestsellers by a single author, a total of 67, which, by the way, is also a Guinness World Record. I know you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I absolutely found it fascinating. And actually, we recorded this episode before James Patterson made his controversial remarks um, about white people facing racism in the publishing world, which he subsequently backtracked on. He said that he absolutely doesn't believe that, uh, and it was a mistake. And it totally was a mistake. You only have to look at the, the stats surrounding the amount of white people who get their books published compared to others to realise that it was a mistake. However, that in itself is a great reminder for all of us that we are flawed, that we can constantly learn, and that we need to check ourselves all the time. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with James Patterson. Our chat with the world's number one selling author comes next on High Performance.
2: I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
0: what we tend to do, James, is start all of our conversations with the same question. What is high performance? For someone as phenomenally successful as you, after all the years you've been enjoying that success, have you got a definition for high performance?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, look, I don't come from the same place as a lot of people. I don't think about it. Um, I don't work for a living. I play for a living. Somebody said, you're lucky if you find something you like to do in life. And then it's a miracle of somebody who'll pay you to do it. And that's kind of my gig. I don't think about it at all. Um, I, I consider it to be, I uh, consider myself to be lucky. I grew up in a little town in upstate New York on the river, and I still see the world through that. So I get a kick out of this stuff. You know, I, I do a couple of books with President Clinton. This is cool. I, I hang out with them. Very interesting. I know Trump 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 and Clinton used to play golf together, which is hilarious. I don't know if I'm answering your question or avoiding it or whatever, but i don't I don't think about it, and I never have. I do a lot of stuff, I stay busy um I find that i'm I think I'm doing the best work I've ever done right now, so I'm probably just delusional so
4: Well, can I jump in there, James, and quote to you in your brilliant book? One story that jumped out to me was when you met Walter Sullivan, who told you that you have a gift. You say that you don't think about it, but other people have obviously spotted it. What is it you think that gift is?
1: Well, the gift for writing, I mean, this uh, I have an autobiography coming out, obviously, James Patterson by James Patterson, very modest title. <laughs> um, and Walter Sullivan uh, was um professor I had at Vanderbilt uh, Graduate School. Um, and um, he just he read a bunch of my short stories and he, and he just he just felt what's what is that gift? I don't know. It's I mean, for me. Um, I I like to pretend that I'm telling a story to somebody. It's one person sitting across from me. I I have this in the autobiography. I don't want them to get up till I'm finished. I haven't led that exciting a life uh, compared to a lot of people. But this autobiography is a lot more interesting than some people who have led really interesting lives. Um, But I just know how to tell a story better than they do.
4: And what was the impact of that, though? Like when, like we often talk on this podcast, James, around this, what Sigmund Freud called the golden seed moment where somebody recognizes that gift in you. What was the impact of that
1: on you? Now, my grandmother, uh, you know, she um, she basically said, you know, you can do, you, ha- you got it. You got a big IQ. You can do whatever you want to do. So you got to figure out what you want to do. She said, I could not play basketball in the NBA. So So forget about that. And um, uh, so she just drilled it into my head that I could, I could accomplish what I felt like accomplishing. And then, you know, I, I did, I, it seemed to me to make sense that to do something that I like to do. And I, I started writing, and, uh, and I loved it. And I, and I said, well, I'd somehow I want to try to figure out how to do this, you know, make a living out of it. In the beginning, I was, I was in advertising, and I, I wound up running um, Jay Walter Thompson North America, which was about 65% of their business. And I was still fairly young was in my 30s, and I, I don't know why I was good at that. I, I think part of it is I have a sense for what's going to move people and what isn't going to move, move them. There is a, a thing in, in, in the book. There was a, a guy there, uh, an account guy, who in the beginning, he couldn't stand me because I was a young and I was a little arrogant and whatever, but I thought I kind of, within reason, knew the answers to stuff, and eventually it's southern guy, and he came up with the line. He said, uh, uh, if Patterson says a grasshopper can move a plow, Hitch up that little motherfucker! You know? <laughs> it's a funny line.
0: <laughs> Great line, and look, it's easy to throw away. I, you know, I became the CEO at 38 of J. Walter Thompson North America. The reality is, to do that, there needs to be incredible hard work. There needs to be real self belief. There needs to be dedication, and and, and you got to run over
1: people. You got to run over your competition. You got to kill them. Explain that. You know, I mean, the advertising. The, the nice thing about it is it's it's quantifiable. You think something's going to work and you have to keep delivering. And if it doesn't work, they go, you know, you're full of it. Uh, you're wrong. You're just wrong again and again and again. You know, I, there's a piece in the book um, I used to, um, when they bring the trainees in, and I would stand up in front of them in a room and I said, I'm going to teach you how to make a million dollars a year in advertising. In those days, a million was was decent money, no more now I have to say I'm teaching how to make ten million dollars a year, um, and I said it's very simple. And, and And I had somebody, and they brought up a cream pie, and I and I held it in my hand, and and then I invited somebody up from the audience, and I'm holding the cream pie and looking at them, and you know whatever, and the, everybody's expecting I'm going to cream, and I, but I gave it to the other person, and I said hit me, and they put the cream pie in my face, and I've got the cream pie all over my face, and I said here's the secret. In terms of advertising, you got to hit them in the face with the cream pie, and while you got their attention, you got to say something smart. The end. That's it. There's nothing else. No cream pie. It doesn't work. Nobody paid attention. Nobody heard your message. Cream pie. That's the start. The second part is, and okay, now what are you going to tell them? You got their attention. You to say something stupid, and they they or you don't, they're not going to remember. You know who the hell brought them the message, et cetera. So, you know, and a lot of times it's, it's coming down to this. What's the simple principle? What's the core uh, of whatever it is? What's the core to writing thrillers? And what's the core to writing kids' books? Or, you know, you're going to make a pitch to President Clinton on why he should, you know, write books with you? Or, you know, why should he? I don't know. i got to think about it and figure out what's the most persuasive argument. Dolly Parton, same thing.
4: Well, would you tell us how then, then, James? So, like, if you go into that Clinton example then, how did you pitch to him?
1: I, I knew that, um, that he loved uh, Mysteries anyway, and I knew that we have the same lawyer, and I knew that the lawyer had been trying to get him to write something. And I said, look, I, I, I'm convinced that, and I think we have the same goal here, which is at the end of the process, we want to look at this book and go, we're really glad we did this. You know, I think both of us at this point, neither one of us want to do something where at the end of it, you go, yeah, we made some money, but it sucks. And that was compelling to him. One, he, you know, I knew he liked mysteries, and I reminded him of that. I said that it's going to be as much work as you want it to be. It can be a lot of work. Or it can be a little work. It's all up to you. I mean, I have a famous athlete that I'm talking to right now. I don't know if we're going to do it, or but it's the same, same notion. You know, we're going to do something good. In this case, it'll be um, TV and, and, and maybe it may be a novel at some point. It's going to be good. You can give me as much as you want. I want the authenticity for sure. I mean, that was the other thing with Clinton, and even with Dolly to some extent. A lot of thrillers, and I've done this, you're making stuff up, okay? (laughs) With Clinton, there are some things that are a little over the top, although in this day it's hard to say that anything is over the top because it seems like anything can happen. But, but, But it was like, okay, if this happened, What would the Secret Service actually do? You've been in the car. What would they act, you know, step by step? Or if this thing happened, you know, if the president had to disappear, which is unlikely uh, and hard to do, let's lay it out how this could happen. You know, so you had the authenticity there, which Hollywood loves. Um, And the same thing with Dolly's book, the authenticity of eh, not even so much country and Western, but just the music scene. How does it happen? How does somebody break in? How hard it is. You can have all the talent in the world and not make it in that business.
4: So how did you establish a relationship then with somebody like Bill Clinton?
1: I don't know. We have a lot of laughs. They trust me. I'm quick. um, We don't mess around. You know, uh, my grandmother had a couple of lines. She always wanted to go go chop wood. and, And she had another line, hungry dogs run faster. And Dolly's like that. And so is Clinton to some extent. I mean, they're both like, I mean, let's do it. Let's, let's rock and roll. Let's get it done. Bill talks a little bit more, but we've become friends, which is great. I mean, you want to, you're going to work with somebody over a couple of years. You want to be, you know, Clinton uh, for, for Christmas, what did he send me this year? Uh, Monopoly for socialists. Let me pick up on something there then, which is
0: hungry dogs run faster. You're now in your 70s. You've had phenomenal success. You have sold millions and millions of books. No one sold more around the world. Why are you still a hungry dog?
1: Because, uh, as I think I said, I don't work for a living. I play for a living. And um, and, and why would I not want to do that? You know, it's like uh, you can eat ice cream uh, as many hot fudge sundaes as you want to. Okay, <laughs> I'll do that. And, I, you know, and as I said, I think, and I don't think I'm deluding myself, but I think I'm better than I was Ten years ago, I think actually writing the autobiography focused me a lot. I think that was really useful, and I think that you know what i 've been doing since then I think is better and the autobiography that 's tough you 're going to you know take your own life and, and make it interesting and tell these little stories and keep people uh involved so challenge and and I like it, and also challenges you know okay we 're going to try that I, you know, tried fiction you know with the first with the Jeffrey Epstein book and then. Uh got one coming on on uh, Diana and, and, and the boys, Diana and Sons, which is different. And that's a key thing, too. I mean, there are a lot of her her as princess. This is her as mother. And the boys said about her she's the best mother in the world. And, and so that's a different look at Diana. Uh, and that's another thing that I'm, I'm pretty good at going. Like, eh, who, who needs another Diana book? We don't need another Diana princess book at all. But a mama book, that's different. That could be interesting and, you know. And that's the core thing. when I talked about the core, that's what I thought the, the key to the Diana thing. It's Diane and Sons. That's that's the that's the real message. That's the hook. That's the get people involved and, and then deliver it to them. I mean, I don't want to just, you know, lie about something that isn't accurate. That'd be bad. There's a good story though there for people who are listening to this about
0: finding something that's different to everybody else. and, and we have so many people listening to this podcast, James, because they're either a bit lost or they're a bit confused or the one thing they can't find is their passion or their reason for being.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. What advice would you give them? In terms of the writing or things like that, I mean, if you're an addict, you're not going to be able to help yourself. So that, that's just going to happen. Um, I think part of it is, and we certainly try to do this with our son, Jack's 24 now. And all we would try to do is just keep opening doors and, and just stay open to stuff. Stay open, stay open, stay open. Open the door, check that. Don't just sit there and assume. People do it all the time. Oh, I wouldn't like to do this. I, I got this, one of my best friend is a teacher. And he would have been great in business. But he always, ah, I'd be, I, I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it. And then after he was a teacher, he did some some work with some businesses. He said, you know, I kind of like this shit, you know. Because he, he never opened the door. And we just can't sit back and, you know, we read an article or whatever. We know somebody who does something. Well, I wouldn't want to do that. no. Reach in, mess around with it.
0: And how do you open those doors?
1: My parents, or my mother, was a teacher. I was a good student because I didn't. I wanted to get out of a little town that I was in, but uh, but I didn't like it. I didn't like school at all. I didn't like. I didn't. I didn't like to read when I was a little kid. So I closed that door. And then when I, I, I worked at a mental hospital, worked my way through college, and I had a lot of nights. And so I started reading like a mad person, all serious stuff. Not not the crap that I write. I'm just kidding. And I liked it. But I, I turned it off. So I, 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 went, I went, in a million years, I didn't think I'd be a writer. I would closed that door stupidly.
4: So how do you go about opening doors then, James, now? And what advice would you give to listeners?
1: Talk to people. You think you want to be a lawyer, whatever the hell it is, talk to a bunch of lawyers. What do you really do? It's not like the TV show. What really happens? <laughs> and, and, and am I going to like that? I mean, that's one of the things that people do. Like, oh, I, got, I want to make some money. Yeah, that's true. But how are you going to do it? You know, um, our son now he's, he's he's in banking, and I'm sort of scratching my head a little bit because he could do anything. But um, am I going to like doing that? You know, if if you have the luxury of being able to, you know, hopefully, you know, support yourself and do something that you like to do. You know, the secret of life is finding something that you love to do, and then and then it's a miracle if somebody will pay you to do it. That's the other piece of it. It may be that you, you have to do your day job and, and your real passion is, is what the hell you do when you go home. You know, you're 280 pounds and you're a ballet dancer, probably not going to get into the ballet in London, but that doesn't mean you can't do the ballet when you come home. And that it, and it could be very gratifying. You know what I mean? So sometimes that's the way to do it. Or, you know, I didn't immediately, I didn't have the guts to go off and just write novels. So I worked in advertising and I wrote novels on the side. And somehow that balance was fine, and I kept getting better as a writer, um, and I was paying the bills,
4: you know. So, what do you tell us about that early experience then? Because in again in in that autobi- uh in the autobiography you wrote, you that like your work ethic of investing that time early in the morning before you went to the advertising agency. Would you tell us a little bit around that work ethic and the lessons?
1: Yeah, well, that was the play ethic because, uh, uh, you know, I'd get up early in the morning, but I wanted to. I desperately wanted to. I mean, when I went into work at 8.30 or something, I felt I'd already accomplished great stuff because I'd been writing for a couple of hours. I really felt, you know, and and if I had the opportunity at at lunchtime, I'd close my door and write for half an hour. Or if I was on a plane ride, yeah, great, man, I'm writing, (laughs) you know. So don't, you know, you just don't waste any time. And, you know, like a lot of people, when they get older, they don't know what to do with themselves. I always know what to do. If I have free time, I don't, if, if if I get one of those periods, you know, and at the end of the day, I'm going, I don't want to do it. I know what to do with myself. I come up here and write some more. And I love it. It's not work. I, yeah, I'm very lucky. I, I mean, let's face it. It's it, it, I lucked into it. But, you know, if I if I hadn't, accidentally opened that door, I wouldn't have lucked into it because I wasn't a huge reader and and I, I didn't think of myself as a writer. And then I, I figured out, like, what are my strengths and weaknesses? And you you try to max out your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. And, and that's true in pretty, pretty much anything. I mean, whether you're a, a football player or, you know, okay, what do I do? And, and to be honest about it and, and, and uh, you know, improve what you can, you know, I um um, when I when I finally made it big, like with the uh, Alex Cross books, I sat down and I go like, okay, what am I good at? What am I and I, I decided I was gonna write in those books both first and third person. So Alex his sections are all in the first person, but I can but I can also write third person, you know, in terms of the villains or whatever other subsidiary characters in the book. So I could make I could make use of, of my strengths and my weaknesses. That's another important thing. And for people to be honest with themselves. And, and yeah, don't worry about it. So you got some flaws. So what? Who doesn't? So
4: you described, that, like you were talking about doing that inventory of your strengths and weaknesses. And again, you speak about that period of your life working in the psychiatric hospital that you say helped you to develop empathy, which has obviously been a great trait in your writing. Would you tell us about how, how you developed that and why it was so important?
1: Um. Yeah, I, part of that, I think there was a seed in, in, in terms of my family. Um, they, you know, I mean, they had their pluses and minuses. I mean, I think both my parents had drinking problems, but they were basically good people. And, um, you know, they they recognized, um, you know, I, I, I've been poor and I was middle class and then I was poor and middle class again. And now I'm very well-to-do and on balance, I prefer being well-to-do. Um, But I'm really glad that I went through poor and middle class uh, because it taught me a lot about understanding people and understanding that, you know, there are a lot of people with not a lot of money around that are a lot more. I think they're smarter. A lot of people I know who didn't really have much money, they're smarter than the people I see here in Palm Beach who have millions and billions of dollars. You know, some people, they just luck into shit. When they don't realize it, they're like, they think they're, you know, God's gift, but not always the case. Um, you know, so, I mean, and, and I think, you know, being exposed to, well, you know, my father grew up in a Newburgh poorhouse. Uh, uh, so it was, that's kind of like being homeless. His mother was a the charwoman there and, um, they got some little room and, you know, so that was a part of the background. And it's not like I take any medals for that, but, you know, it, it, it gets you thinking about stuff and, uh, uh, and you recognize that, uh, you know, you, 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 you need to be lucky and, and but in particular, Uh, You just need to have respect for people. I have great respect for people that that work for a living. And I always want people to understand better. You know, I'm doing a series of books, and they're not really that big in England. They should be because they're really good. But, like, the first one was called Walking My Combat Boots. And um, uh, I wrote it with this guy, a friend of mine from down here, uh, Matt Eversman. He was the, uh, the movie Black Hawk Down. He was the actual sergeant in the movie. And I saw him interviewing some some military people one time, and I said, This guy is great at it, because a lot of times military people, they don't want to talk about what happened, you know? And and he was great at getting people to talk the military. So I said, let's do a book, man. And and our mission was at the end of the book that people who had been through it, military people, would say, Everestman and Patterson got it right. And other people would go, you know, I thought I understood the military. I had no idea. I was just deluding myself. Uh, and then we did one with ER nurses. And I go, oh, we love nurses. Man, if you realize what they do on an hourly basis, it's like, how do they not go crazy? You know, you talk about PTSD or whatever. I mean, it's like, it's just one thing after the other. This curtain and the kid lost his arm and this curtain and the old lady hasn't having a heart. you know, it's like, how do they do that? But but the, what I loved about it is at the end of it, um, people would actually understand Nurses, you know, like with uh, uh, military, when people go up and they thank people for their service, if they read that book, they would understand what the hell they're thanking him for. And even with the autobiography, I mean, you know, you get Stephen King going, well, Patterson can't write. Well, fuck him. Read the book. <laughs> he actually can write, you know. So, I mean, that's a little piece of it just to change just dive the, you know, the way you, um, people about perceive
0: criticism like that. How Uh, do you deal with everyone having an opinion about your writing? Because, again, it's great advice for our listeners who maybe struggle with that.
1: It's fine. You know, it's healthy, it's useful. I mean, you hope that it's just not too, you know, unnecessarily nasty. But the the way the world is now, it's it's just going to happen. And and that there's some truth to it. Um, And as long as there is, I'm I'm cool with it. And, you know, with King, you know, I read a lot of his stuff. I think he's a good writer. What can I say? But have you had to go on a a journey
0: to get to that place, James. I mean, look, no, no, you've always been okay with criticism and
1: yeah, good criticism. Yeah. No, I don't, I'm not, I don't suffer fools terribly well. So, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of school. I was, as I said, I wanted to get out. So I was always a good student, but I don't know, even college I found to be kind of a bore uh, and I, and I did well, but it was just like, really seriously, dude. I, mean, I don't know. know, yeah. <laughs> Graduate school a little better. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Walter Sullivan, whatever, who, who, you know, basically said, you know, you, you can do this, you can do it at a at a high level. Um and that was useful. But I, I kind of vaguely knew that anyway. Uh, but it was it still was it still was helpful.
0: As hard as teachers work, do you think that in twenty twenty two the way we educate our children is is right. Our schools, current modern schools, fit for purpose.
1: I think it could be a lot better than it is. I think there's there's too many people at the top making too many rules that don't make sense. We, you got to be real about. Look, you got kids here. Let's be real. I've got these 20 kids or 30 kids in front of me, and I got to keep it interesting for them. You know, with the reading, I think it's really important that kids read. You know, I, I have a, a kids imprint here in America. And our mission, I think it's smart and simple, but when a kid finishes a Jimmy book, they'll say, please give me another book. How simple could it be? But in terms of, of, of the books we're going to pick and, you know, whatever, that's the mission. And if we don't think it's, it's a book the kids are going to read, and, and we're not, not dumb books, but they're books you read and you go, that was a cool book. I want another book. As opposed to, at least in this country, millions of kids who say, I've never read a book I liked. That, I mean that's silly and why would and why in schools you know look Shakespeare I mean you just can't throw people into Shakespeare you know you gotta I uh it's <laughs> funny to explain this in some little class about Shakespeare and and, and I and I literally stood up in a, in a seat and I said look you gotta understand like the environment here like we're in London and it's really weird that there are this many theaters because it wasn't true around anywhere around the world maybe a little bit in Paris but these theaters are like crazy, I mean, people are drinking, and they're loud, and so these actors got to get everybody's attention. So they're going to, that's why I'm going to shout this out, this little thing from Macbeth, I'm going to shout out that first half page. And you got to, here's the scene that Shakespeare's got to write for. All these people, they don't want to, they're, whatever they're doing, and they're kissing, and they're drinking, and whatever the hell, but he's got to get their attention. So understand that about, you know, now I'm going to tell you a little bit of history just so you vaguely kind of understand, not too much, just enough so that you're, you're not going to get too lost. And the other thing is you might notice around the room here, I've put in all these phrases and stuff up on the on on the wall, okay? Phrases, words, whatever. Here's the weird thing, okay? And this is a cool thing about Shakespeare. He invented all of these words and all these friends. He literally invented those friggin' words. And if you think about words, Everything I'm saying, everything you say, somebody invented that word. Isn't that weird? Somebody actually thought it up and said, this is the word for dog food, <laughs> whatever. You know, pick whatever you want to pick, dog, puppy, whatever. Somebody invented that. you know. But that Shakespeare invented all this stuff. Isn't that cool? So anyway, so I got the kids for the moment. And, uh, and then maybe they'd listen to the Shakespeare stuff. I don't know. But kids, you know, teachers, to some extent, they just got to be real about what we're doing. It just can't be. You got to do this because we're going to do a test. And then the state is going to do a test. And who cares? So I don't think that's working very well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
2: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: I want to keep the conversation about that period in your life, and I want to just roll forwards to when you went to therapy, if you're happy to talk about that. And you write in your brilliant book, you said, my poor dad had his own tough issues and probably felt he was doing the best he could. The year of therapy helped me understand I was lovable, not because I was first in my class, Uh not because I was as successful as hell, but because I was me. I would love you to talk to us a bit about that because we have people struggling with that.
1: Well, I mean, you've kind of laid it out. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the reality. I was very lucky, and I wasn't even looking to go into therapy, and I just, it was another situation, and I met this guy, and he said, well, I wouldn't mind talking to you a little bit, and, and we actually became friends. At the I, After about a year, I said, you know, I, I've, I've made some, some stuff here, and I'm, and I'm pretty comfortable with it, and after that, we used to go out to lunch like once a month. Uh, I didn't feel necessarily that I needed it, but it was really, really useful for me to come to grips with any anger issues that I would have. You know, you'd sit there in a New York cab or something, and you get mad at the cabbie for something. You go like, wait a minute, what the hell is that? And and what I, what I figured, th- you know, ultimately was that a lot of that was my dad, who used to get real mad, and he curse a lot and stuff like that. And I go, well, that's not me. That's him. <laughs> and, uh, and that was helpful. And that notion of, once again, who's the core person? And, you know, I think I'm a, a, a decent human being. I try to do the right thing most of the time. Um, you know, have a sense of trying to be funny, you know, within reason. And, and you know, and and uh, compassionate when it's appropriate. And, you know, I'm going through stuff, you know, all families now. My sisters are, you know, whatever, there's some sickness. And, you know, you, you got to deal with it. You got to, you know. So I think the family was was very useful there. And I think the therapy... It was good, you know, for 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 a year or so. And then some, I'm not saying that it needs to be a year. Sometimes it's less. Sometimes it's a lot more than that.
4: So, can you share any specific tricks or tips that you picked up in therapy that you still use today? Then, James,
1: um, I don't remember anything in particular, but it was just a, just a change in my point of view, why I was doing certain things. If I would, you know, if I if, if I would get angry about something that was inappropriate, I'd go like, oh, that's just that thing with my dad and 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 also, not to blame him, this is my situation, but you know not to blame him for stuff. he did have you know he grew up as i said in that in the in the poorhouse and took a bunch of crap in his life and you know drank more than he needed to, et cetera. so there were issues with him that i'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold that against him. One of the things, and this was uh it's in the book, and um this is also I think useful for people to consider. I I had a a house down on the ocean um, and uh, I was in advertising and I had to go back one Sunday and I was in the the Garden State and it was like wall to wall. It was like going like seven miles an hour heading back to New York. And I'm hating it. I'm going like, man, I just left the beach and it was great and the sun was shining. I'm going back to do this stupid advertising meeting, which I don't really want to do. I definitely don't want to, you know, leave the shore and I'm watching, and on the other side of the road, about every 10, 15 seconds, one car would go by. Okay? And, and, and I'm watching, and I'm watching, and I'm watching. And at a certain point, and this is one of those eureka moments, I mean, literally eureka moment for me, it dawned on me that my life was going in the wrong direction. I didn't need to be in that on that lane going back to New York City to do advertising. <laughs> I needed to get on the other side of the road, literally, get on the other side of the road with those cars that are going by, and and that was the point where I I basically said no. I can, I'm getting out of advertising. I'm going to write books for a living. Boom, just like that. And I had a meeting a couple weeks after that with the guy that ran Thompson. And uh, he was saying, "You know, you could run it all the whole world. And I'm going like, yeah, you know I, he said, "I don't know if I said this, but he said that uh one of my lines was, I'm making a, a lot on books now I can't afford to work for J. Walter Thompson anymore <laughs> 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 I don't know whatever <laughs> but uh um, but that thing of of examining your life somehow, which is really hard to do because we get into these habit ruts, you know, and those are dangerous and they're tricky and they're hard to get out of." There was a philosopher, I think it was Locke, and I'm going to, you know, sort of fuck up his reputation with this. But the basic notion was you're in this habit rut and you keep walking it the same way every day and the rut keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And at a certain point, it's so deep that you no longer can have any stimulation. You cannot get out of the rut because you're getting no stimulation. And that's, I think, a lot, what happens to a lot of us. We keep getting into this rut and we get deeper and, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And we cut off all stimulation that would get us out of the rut.
4: I've heard it described, James, as the only difference between a rut and a grave is the size of the hole. I think uh-huh. that's what you <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. So can yeah, I ask yeah. you about
4: another Damascus moment or a Eureka moment, as you described it in the book, when your first love, Jane, um, mm. You write really beautifully about that relationship, and there was one particular moment where you described going into a really posh restaurant and the experience where oh. she said, "James, you yeah. belong here," and it, that yeah, yeah, really yeah. intrigued me about imposter
1: syndrome. Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, that's um, you know, I'm I'm from the sticks, and and Jane, um, you know, more of an upper middle class kind of an upbringing, and she wanted to take me to this very fancy French restaurant in New York. And uh, which she loved, and um, I, um, uh, I, w- I was uptight because I really didn't know how to operate that well, in in, in this French restaurant. And she, and she was great. She and she would never make fun. She would never, and and she did this very privately, so it wouldn't bother people around. And and she she'd ordered some stew, French stew, whatever. And she just took her face and she put it down in the stew. And then she came up with all this goop on her face. And she said, look, this is our restaurant. <laughs> this is us. We don't, we don't care about anybody else. And she wasn't, you know, nobody, she wasn't going to bug anybody else. She was very, you know, didn't want to ruin anybody else's dinner. But she made that point of, yeah, that's right. It is. This is our place. We're here. We're not going to bother other people, but, um, and that's important that, that you get comfortable and not, and not get afraid of uh, whatever the hell it is.
4: So, what advice could you offer to our listeners then about overcoming that that uh, those fears of not fitting in or not being good enough?
1: Yeah, try not to give two shits about it. <laughs> Just go through your life. It's okay. You're you're fine. And if it, and if it doesn't work, then who cares? It's you know, it, it's like um, uh, I golf more than I should, and and I get with people and they're always so like, oh man, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to hit a bad shot. Nobody cares. You're the only person that cares. Nobody cares if you hit a bad shot. We might break your chops, but you know we're going to make fun of you. But we don't really care. All we care about is what we're – so, you know, just don't care so much. It's just not – it ain't a big deal. People really get twisted up about stuff, and uh, it's not useful. You know, it's just like, you know, what's going on with the Ukraine now? Look, you can contribute. You could, um, and, and there are lots of ways to contribute. You can contribute to small towns there. You can, you know, you could go over there if you really want to. You know, I have a friend who went over, a journalist, older, and he went over to, you know. But if you're not going to do anything, don't sit there. It's a beautiful day. You know what I mean? Don't beat yourself up all day if it's not going to help. You know, people do that all the time. Uh, like, oh, yes, there's terrible things happening in the world. There have always been terrible things happening in the world and do what you do what you can do and then you know yeah, it's a nice day you know hey i'm going to you know look at the sky wow <laughs> i'm going to count the clouds for 10 minutes you know
0: and uh, james whether it's um elite soldiers whether it's current or former presidents whether it's singers like dolly parton uh-huh. actors like tom cruise you have spent so much of your life with people who the outside world considers to be incredibly successful do they still carry these doubts these imposter syndromes these fears these worries
1: The imposter thing, you know, I don't know. Some do, some don't about that. I think at times in my life, I've had a little sense of that imposter thing. I don't think I have it now, or maybe I do, but I'm not aware of it anymore. I think that President Clinton and Dolly both have, you know, a nice amount of confidence in themselves, obviously. On the other hand, I mean, you know, Dolly will always play with the idea of the dumb blonde, and she's anything but. You know, she's she's very bright. She's very quick. She's really a good business person and, and really, really nice. She, um, at one point when we were uh, doing the book and, and Rolling Stone said, we'll give you a cover. And they said, but we don't want Jim. And she said, no, I, I, I won't go on the cover without Jim. That's just the way she is, which is, which is great. And what did that mean to you? Uh, it didn't surprise me, but it, it, it encouraged me. I mean, part of it, and I'll get this again and again, cause everybody, not everybody, most people love her And they go, I hope she's like that in real life. And she is like that in real life. You know, she's a character. She's got a fast tongue. She's funny. She's not full of herself, but she's very confident in in her abilities. And I think, you know, President Clinton is similar that way. I think I'm similar that way. I think the people, the real imposters are the ones that, you know, like to pretend. You know what bank I'm the president of? Not really. Not really. (laughs) <laughs> do I give a shit? I don't know. <laughs> you know. Um, you know, every once in a while, and this I, I really try to bite my tongue, my thing in restaurants is I just want to be treated the way I would expect you to treat all customers, you know? And uh probably about once a year you get some shit treatment somewhere and you and and and, and you wind up saying, Do you know who I am? And I wanna kill myself when I do that.
4: <laughs> James, can I ask you about what I would consider to be a bit of a superpower that you have, which is you have this sort of detached curiosity that I think from when you described it, at the psychiatric hospital, and even like when you first started in advertising, you were almost like a reluctant outsider into that world because you wanted to be a writer. But I think there's something really quite powerful for people to understand when it comes to high performance, how to observe.
1: I don't know that there are any rules, honestly, other than understanding who you are and following that within reason and maxing your strength and minimizing your weaknesses. But, you know, even when I was in school, I never was in cliques. I was cool with the nerds. I was cool with the smart kids. I was cool with the jocks, you know, within reason. But I wasn't in the clique. You know what I mean? So I never had to, like, I got to act in this clique way because this is how all the cool jocks Act, you know, or down here. Well, you know, I better get a Bentley because everybody here seems to have a Bentley. I, you know, I don't care. If you, Bentleys are beautiful. I don't want one myself, but but they're really they're really nice looking cars, but they're not for me. So you know, no clicks. I don't know. It's it's useful for me. And you, know, you said detached, and I think that's a little piece of it. You know, I'm really impressed with President Clinton, but I will tell you this a quick. <laughs> so. We, it's in the book too, but it's, it's such a cute story. You know, uh, we went out golfing and, uh, uh, you know, they said, you know, I'll only play nine holes. I said, yeah, great. I don't, I don't care. We can just go in a putting green. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. So we get to the third of the fourth hole and I feel a golfer up, but he had about an eight foot putt for birdie and you don't leave short putts short in golf, you know, and he left the eight foot eight foot putt about four foot short And I turned to him and I said, you pussy. And he said, you just call me a pussy? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're right. I am a pussy. And that established, I I don't use the word pussy in the book, (laughs) but that established the two of us as human beings and whatever. And we knew we could talk to each other and joke and he could make fun of me and I could make fun of him in public. It's Mr. President and blah, 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 which is great and appropriate, you know. And all of this, James,
0: goes back to one of your early jobs at McLean Hospital, where you said in your book that you learned to handle responsibility responsibly. It felt when reading that, that that was where you understood the human connection. And that still remains something that's so important to you today. It feels like we're losing a lot of that in the modern world.
1: That was a, yeah, that was a really great experience for me on a lot of levels. Um, one of them was just sanity and whatever, uh, people who have, you know, psychiatric problems. Uh, that was a piece of it. Another piece of it was, um, it was a really upscale place. Uh, you know, a lot of the people, not all, not all, but a lot of them had money. The doctors were mostly from Harvard. So it was useful for me to experience things that I hadn't experienced because where I grew up it was very it was a real small town and uh and this was this was a big town and 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 plus that opportunity to read things so you know, like I mentioned Jean Genet, you know Our Lady of the Flowers, and stuff like that, you're going like, okay, this dude is thinking a little differently than me and and that's good because you know yeah people have different approaches and different views of the world, and you don't necessarily get that in a small town where even if they do, they kind of keep it to themselves, you know.
0: But I kind of got the impression from that that you, you learn to value the fact that all jobs can shape your career. And I wonder whether in this world we should take entry-level jobs more seriously and we should all have that open mind that you might not be where you really, really want to be, but yeah. where you are can still help you get there.
1: Yeah, no, and, 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 and also um, there's no particular reason that businesses have to get into this habit of just torturing the shit out of people when they're entry-level. You know, I mean, there's a certain, yeah, pay your dues within reason, but let's keep it human and and civilized and whatever. Well, this is the way it was when I, you know, went in there. You hated it, right? Yeah, I hated it. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, you know, unless, you know, like doctors, man, you know, interns and stuff. I'm in a hospital, man. I don't want this dude to come in here and go, I've been 40, 42 hours in a row. Great. Now get out of this room because I don't want to. <laughs> so why want do we some- do it then? You know, habit. Habit. And, and, and that's one of the things. We need to just question stuff. Hold it. Why are we doing this? Is it relevant anymore? Should this change?
4: You've spoken really powerfully about the influence your family have had on you, James. What messages and lessons would you hope to pass on to your son so that when he talks about you, what kind of things would you like him to say?
1: The opening the door things it was, is a huge thing with Jack. Another piece of it is, and I mention this in the book, it's probably not totally accurate, but the first time I remember my father giving me a hug was on his deathbed. And with Jack, every day that he was here from when he was a little kid and we would drop him off, i give him a hug, uh, you know, and drop him off at school, and he was comfortable with it. It's like, okay, fine. He, he gives me a hug. It's all right. Well, I'm used to it. And if the kids go, oh, Dad gave me a hug. He go, yeah, so... <laughs> You know, trying to be comfortable in your own skin, maxing out your talents, being you know understanding kind of what you do particularly well, what you don't do as well. I'll tell you, when he was he was young, he went off to prep school, which we didn't really want him to do, but he wanted to do it, and it was probably an okay. But be- when he was with us, that he was the funniest little bastard in the world. He was so funny and clever. Just I mean, the stuff that he would you know he he'd be, it, you could have been a writer for Saturday Night Live when he was like twelve. And, then, and they took the funny out of him in prep school. You know, they just beat it out. I don't know how the hell they did. And all of a sudden, they said, Jack, you used to be so funny. What happened? I don't know. <laughs> but a lot of that stuff, you know, uh, understanding who you are, that core thing, which I think is 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 vital for people to get to that thing and get comfortable with it. And as I said before, that little thing of, you know, sometimes it's going to be your avocation that that get you through the day. You know, you just, you know, you have to take a job that... Yeah, it's not optimum. So it goes, you know. James, we've reached the point in our
0: conversation where we move on to some quick fire questions. The first one of which is the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you need to buy into.
1: Uh, You know, I'm just not big on elitism. I'm not big on phonies. I think it's also also better if you, you know, life is so complicated. You have to make it simple. So if you can take three and make it two, or if you can make it one, all to the good.
4: <laughs> if you could go back to any moment of your life, what would it be and why?
1: I think like everybody, you'd like to be able to, um, whatever wisdom you've gathered, uh, whatever you've figured out, some of the money, <laughs> and, th- and then be 30. That'd be cool. Uh, I, I, could, I, could, I, I think I'd probably get in some trouble, though, so it wouldn't be good. And, I, you know, Sue is great. I mean, I'm very lucky uh you know as i say uh, uh sue and i you know, we go to bed every night holding hands and that's accurate and uh uh you know if sue ever left me uh i'm going with her you know so that's a uh, yeah so that, that that that's another i mean that's obviously another important thing you know you know who you're with and do you need to be with somebody and a lot of people do um and 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 how you how you find that person how you you know, balance off. You know, figure out who the hell you are, what's wrong with you, what's right with you, and and I think when you find somebody who really is, you should feel like you know, I I'm so lucky to have found this person, and, and I'm not fucking it up. I'm just not going to mess it up. I'm just you know, I'm not going to I'm 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 not saying that line because no. How important is legacy to you? Yeah, I mean, if it's useful to the family, fine. You know. Um, but, but mostly you just want to be, you know, up, as I said, I mean, to some extent writing the book, and, and, and I know it's a good book, and I know some of the others that I've written are good. Some aren't some aren't, aren't very good at all, but, you know, half a dozen or whatever, they're, they're good, and they've created X number of characters. And you just want people to, within reason, be fair about it. That's all, you know. So um, right now, um, but legacy eh, doesn't mean anything to me. What
4: advice would you give to a teenage James just starting out?
1: The one thing I will draw your attention to is if you're nodding your head, don't pay that much attention because you already know that. You know, some of the things that I'm taking for granted now about, you know, confidence, you know, being comfortable in your own skin. I don't think I was even close when I was, when I was a teenager. And, and it, took, it, took a, it took a while. As I said, part of it was Jane, part of it, you know, my grandmother helped. But even there, you know, because kids are kids are cruel. <laughs> They're always trying to beat you down and whatever. And uh, don't listen to them. And um,
0: finally, James, your one golden rule for uh, for how to live a high performance life. How would you lo- what would you like to leave people with for that?
1: It is the, the, the know thyself. You know, you just you got to be somewhat realistic about who you are, and and go with it as I said about the 280 pounds ballerina, you know, probably not going to, I don't know, or maybe you can, but it, it's going to be difficult to, to get on Broadway with it. But that doesn't mean you can't dance. And finding that passion and somehow bringing it into line with, with, with your, your skill set. James, it's been uh, such an interesting hour to sit and talk to you.
0: You are, you're so wise. And I, I get this sort of sense that maybe also quite a different person the one that's sitting before us now to the one that we would have spoken to before you had that year of therapy and you were able to uh, really reflect and become comfortable.
1: Yeah, it could be for sure.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Damien. Jake. He is a wise man. He's a wise man and also someone who is feels so sure of himself, which is a place that so many people are keen to get to.
4: Yeah. I think that, that truism he kept coming back to about know yourself, know yourself, just increase your self-awareness, open, open yourself up to feedback, to curiosity, to experiences. James Patterson is the product of that. And
0: I really loved that story actually about his, when he spoke about his first love, who's, who's um, no longer with us, obviously. And he says that she just I, you know, dipped her face in that bowl and said, This is our place. This is ours. That is such a good metaphor for life to have that mindset that this, we belong
4: here, man. This is us. This is where we should be. Yeah. I think it's so important for people to feel like that. Yeah, definitely. And then you think, like, in the way that he then spoke about the way he spoke to Bill Clinton on the golf course, that's a man that just thinks, I should be here. I'm not second guessing myself. I'm going to treat you in the way that I would treat anybody. You know, like he also then said about. The restaurants he goes into uh, just treat me the same as everybody else. That's a man that is entirely comfortable in his own skin. And like you say, that's a name for all of us to get to. He's a master storyteller as well. <laughs> yeah. There's brilliant that, isn't it? I love the simplicity of it. I remember many years ago as a kid um, meeting um, a phenomenal coach called Jimmy Murphy, who was Matt Busby's assistant. And he did an old exercise where he threw us a tennis ball and he said, catch it and I caught it. He said, I was out." he said, it was easy. So then he threw two and then he threw three and four and finally five. And on the last occasion, you couldn't catch any of them. So what Jimmy Murphy was saying to us in that meeting was that what great coaches do is before they walk into that meeting, they're really clear about the message that they want you to walk away with. They're not throwing lots of information and hoping some sticks. They're giving you the focus message that they want you to take away and understand. And that was what James was talking about, the art of advertising, but equally the art of pitching to Bill Clinton and Dolly Parton to come and write a book with him. What's the one message you want them to walk away and engage with?
0: And it comes back to what he said at the end there about the power of simplicity. And my final sort of thought from that is the fact that he just goes to President Clinton and says, let's write a book or goes to Dolly Parton and wants to write a book. I know that people can easily go, well, he's James Patterson. Yeah, but it was that thought that made him into the James Patterson that we see today that not just thinking big, but thinking big with a kind of um, a real belief that it will happen and a kind of sanguine approach to listen, this is the pitch. This is the idea. This is where I'm going. Come along if you want. And sometimes I think that can be really powerful for people. You know, he doesn't set himself short. He just sells himself as he is and people are attracted to that.
4: Yeah. I remember once working with a brilliant coach in rugby league, a guy called Tony Smith. And when he took over at a team, he gave one of the best opening speeches I've ever heard of a coach. He just said, I'm going to be really successful. Do you want to come along with me? And it was so compelling that players wanted to be a part of it and then he could outline his standards and what he expected from them but that sense of confidence of projecting it onto others like you say it's a it's a compelling mixture
0: i think confidence and self-belief and a real understanding of who you are is a highly attractive mix isn't it damien thank you so much mate i really enjoyed that we have had james patterson the best-selling
4: author in the history of the world on the high performance podcast wow Yep, and he was swearing and speaking to us like, uh, like he probably would do if we were down in the pub with him, and that and that's sort of, that felt a real privilege. Absolutely, top man. I loved it. I got told off by James Patterson.
0: <laughs> Okay, it's time to uh, chat to another of our high-performance listeners. We've got a really nice message from a young lady called Jasmine saying, I'm a primary school teacher. I've always loved sports and one of my friends told me about this podcast. He thought I'd like it and since then, I love this bit. I can't stop telling people about the high-performance podcast. Woohoo! I've always had a naturally positive energy. I look for the best in situations and try to see the perspective in challenging moments. I'm continually learning new things from the podcast and constantly being inspired by the messages and the stories. I use the quote and inspiration every day at school with the children the parents and my colleagues and love seeing the impact this has when I hear children talking positively about a situation controlling the controllables working on their world class basics being resilient and having a greater perspective on situations it makes me so happy and I'm so thankful to the High Performance team for the impact that they've had and Jasmine joins us now from the airport where she's about to fly off on holiday so thanks for uh, letting us disturb something far more important than talking to us
5: (laughs) no thank you so much for having me you
0: know what i love this because for us to sit and have these conversations is one thing for you to hear them even if one person listens to high performance we're delighted but then to pass the stuff on to the next generation to the children in the primary school where you work that is so so brilliant for us so thank you so much jasmine
5: no that's all right thank you so when did you
0: first sort of start thinking actually this podcast resonates with me i can i can uh I can get down
5: with this. So I didn't start listening for about a year. I didn't know about it. And then my friend Dave, he was like, you've got to listen to this podcast because I love having a DMC, a deep, meaningful chat. And he was like, you'll really like this. So I started listening. And then I had a year to catch up on, which was amazing. Um, And then as soon as I started listening, I thought, yeah, this is definitely something that I can use all the time. I literally have a notes section in my phone where I like write down the quotes that I like from it. And yeah, straight away, I just loved it.
4: So which was the interview that really resonated initially for you, Jasmine?
5: Oh, there are so many. It's really hard. When I was writing my email, I tried to do a top three and I ended up with a top 10. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, well,
0: what were the first three on the 10?
5: Oh, I can't remember. One that's maybe a bit unusual that maybe not as many people have listened to is Steve Salis. Was so um, I think because it was like an education background as well, um, And all about like normalizing failure and the empathy and the kindness that really like came through to me. And that's something that I try and like live out on a daily basis with the children. So definitely that one.
4: Which other ones?
5: So Billy Munger, I think, is a massive inspiration, definitely. And just how when he said like it, he knew it wasn't his fault that was. um, what happened, but it was his responsibility how he reacted. I try and talk to um the children about that all the time because they have so many things that happen in the playground, which is obviously the biggest thing in their little world. That is like the most important thing to them. But it's just trying to teach them that actually like how you react is your responsibility and you're sort of in control of that. Um, Johnny Wilkinson I had to listen to twice because it was so deep.
0: Yeah, so did I. <laughs>
5: yeah. um, Phil Neville Tom Daly, honestly, there's so many. I feel like I just get something different from all of them.
0: And what would you say is the best way of passing this stuff on? Because I think sometimes people look at seven, eight-year-olds and go, oh, well, they, they don't need to hear about high performance. They're only children. But we think the opposite. We think, like you, that this is the perfect age to share it with them. So what's the most effective way of getting these kinds of conversations into those little brains of theirs?
5: I think the first thing is just that you've got to really be it. Like, I just try and be the positive energy that surrounds them so that because they look up to you, they look around up to every adult, every person, every person they see, every footballer they see on the TV, they are looking up to them all the time. So it's just being that positive energy and being that. Um, just leading by example I guess I think that's the most important thing and then just being open and honest and saying I make mistakes all the time and I'm happy to stand there and say yeah I got that maths question wrong and just sort of just setting that example and having those conversations about mistakes or how how you move on from things how important it is to be kind and just sort of those conversations in daily life.
4: So you must have had an inspirational teacher yourself. Whenever we hear inspirational teachers, I'm always intrigued as to who who lit the fire for you.
5: Yes. So I've actually wanted to be a primary school teacher since I was tiny when I sat down all my teddies and my sister and did the register for the first time but I had inspirational primary school teachers I had someone called Miss Sparks in year one I was a really shy child and I was always confident in who I was and in myself I'm always positive but in front of other people I was really shy and she just sort of like gave me that confidence she really understood me and I've been very fortunate that I've been surrounded by good teachers good family good friends throughout my whole life so yeah very lucky
0: I love that well look thank you so so much for uh, chatting to us thanks Jasmine
5: thank you so much for
0: talking to me so that's it look as always huge huge thanks goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community before we leave you I'd just like to ask you one thing please I only want you to pass this podcast to one person just one one person that you think could grow from this, could learn from this, could understand a bit more from this. That's the single biggest thing that you can do to support us. Don't worry about the High Performance Plus or the Circle or the books or the tours or anything like that. I just want people hearing this content. I want people growing from these conversations. So please, please continue to spread the learnings that you're taking from this series. Thanks as well to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve and to Gemma, and finally to you. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon.